Good afternoon, my name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. Last week I had um, an extraordinary stroke of good fortune. Ever since the afternoon of last Friday I've been engulfed in a flood of memories and I'm discombobulated and a dither, quite unlike my usual self. I was wandering the streets of Pointy Town, somewhat aimlessly, and as I turned a particular corner I felt compelled, there's no other word for it, to head off down a dark, narrow alleyway where lurked a strange little shop. Do you remember the scene towards the end of Random Harvest, Mervyn Leroy's film from 1942, where Charles Rainier, played by Ronald Coleman, turns down a side street to go to a tobacconist and then wonders how he knew it was there, this being a town he's never knowingly visited before and how his consternation is the spur to his gradual recollection of the life that a traffic accident has wiped from his memory, leading, within a few minutes of film time, to the tear-stained scene where he and Paula, Greer Garson, are reunited at the gates of their idyllic country cottage. Well, as I entered the shop in that pointy town alleyway, I had a very similar jolt to my memory, although I'm not a veteran of the First World War whose shell shock had led to total amnesia and a reluctance to speak like Charles Rainier. Listeners who have no idea what I'm gabbling on about should take steps to see this magnificent film at the earliest opportunity. I guarantee that even those with the flintiest of hearts will be sobbing copiously by the end. Not that Hooting Yard listeners tend to be flinty-hearted as a general rule, according to the latest listener profiles gathered by Fatima Gilliblatt and her team of wastrels. Anyway, the shop into which I tottered, having tripped on a thing discarded in the alleyway, was not a tobacconist. It was called, I noted, This Vale of Tears, and its unexpectedly neon-bright interior contained a heteroclite jumble of items for sale. I can only call them odds and ends. Battered biscuit tins, dishcloths, iron utensils of no apparent utility, bags full of swan feathers, rubber inhaling tubes, dog-eared snapshots of goats, pigs and barnyard animals in general, buckets and pails, packets of cupcake mixture... Fawn overslings from a stage production of tap or spigot, fruit made out of wax, fold-out wiring diagrams, wiring, cheesecloth, pastry cases, bound copies of The Propeller, abandoned and in some cases broken sandwich boards, a stuffed crow, litmus paper, human hair braided into rope for ships, surgery-ready canisters, pin cushions, TOC H lamps, Fahrenheit converters, big forks, rotating wooden cubes on a spindle, frozen blobs, an information poster showing the correct pronunciation of yoghurt, that is, yohort, tassels, baubles and bells, some of them enormous bells from a famous foundry, annals of jurisprudence, kitchen whisks, repair kits for the irreparable, teaspoons, marzipan, clock springs, grease in balls, a thanato four, a marble bust of the head of Ringo Starr, lanterns, rattles, fripperies, saws, starched white butcher's curtains, and there, 
in among it all, still in its dust-caked packaging, but otherwise pristine, an original series Ogsby's steering panel. Were you lucky enough, when you were a tiny tot, to receive an Ogsby's steering panel as a birthday gift? I was. I still remember with absolute clarity waking on the icy cold morning of my 10th birthday and finding at the foot of my bed a rectangular object wrapped in old newspaper on which either my father or my mother had scribbled in crayon Happy Birthday to our 10-year-old. I was a dutiful and pious child, so before tearing the package open, I repaired to the bathroom to brush my teeth and to plunge my head into a sink full of icy water, and then I went downstairs to find my parents. My mother was in the garden slaughtering insects. I thanked her for my gift and asked where my father was so I could thank him too. My mother gave me a woebegone look and patted me on the head, mussing my hair in which icicles were beginning to form. I'm afraid your father had to take the dawn train to a secret military establishment at an undisclosed coastal location. Towering cliffs, monstrous waves, shingle, where he will be cooped up for the next six months, helping to devise counterintelligence techniques for use against an enemy so powerful, so ruthless, so fiendish, that it beggars belief, said my mother, and she tapped the side of her nose, indicating that this startling news was to be kept under my hat, had I but a hat to keep it under. <clears throat> Gosh, I replied, so Papa is not, as he appears to all and sundry, a simple village potato shop person. That is but a cover for his real work, which is of national, no, international importance. Well, I never. It is indeed so, said my mother, and as it's your birthday, I'm going to make a present to you of a hat, and you must promise, like the dutiful and pious child you are, to keep this world-shattering revelation underneath it until you reach your majority. I will do so, Mamma. I promised. Her mention of a present recalled my mind to the rectangular package at the foot of my bed. It seemed unlikely that it contained a hat. It was as if my mother read my thoughts. The hat is an extra gift, she said, for your proper present is the one in the rectangular newspaper-wrapped package at the foot of your bed. Go and open it now, and leave me to my slaughter of aphids. I ran upstairs and tore open the rectangular newspaper-wrapped package at the foot of my bed. Is it possible to convey to you the sheer joy with which my entire being was convulsed when I saw that I'd been given an original series Ogsby's steering panel. There it was, new and gleaming, with its little knobs and levers, and the red bakelite prong on one side, and the rubber speaking funnel on the other, the braille-like raised round nodes next to the hooter, the metal snags, the clip-on flaps, and so many, many dials. I think I played with it constantly for the next three hours, until the terrible moment when my father suddenly crashed through the door of my room, ashen-faced and trembling, and tore the original series Ogsby's steering panel from my puny little hands. I have had to jet back here suddenly, son, 
he said in a voice broken by strain. Our powerful, ruthless and fiendish enemy is within minutes of unleashing a plot so intricate, so tangled, just so damned bonkers that the very future of the globe is in direst peril. Only by dismantling your new original series Ogsby's steering panel and using the parts for our top-secret counter-attack machine will the world be saved to guarantee that children like you have a future free from fear of all that is fiendish. I'm sure you understand. And he was gone, and I was left alone on the floor of my room, dutiful and pious, and I never saw my birthday gift again. Oh yeah, the world was saved, the powerful and ruthless and fiendish enemy was foiled, my heroic father resumed his humble potato shop person persona, and my mother eradicated all insect life from our domain. But I always felt a sense of unbearable loss, until last week, when I stumbled upon that original series Ogsby's steering panel hidden behind an array of papier-mâché dustbin lids in this veil of tears, in that gloomy alley in Pointy Town, and the long, insufferable, melancholy years were swept away, and I was a child of ten again, with icicles in my hair. <laughs> I do recommend Random Harvest. It's a marvellous film. Um, topical stuff now. Um, as the deadly bird flu virus sweeps inexorably westward, France apparently is the latest country to report a case, it's vitally important that you take preventative measures to ensure that your pet swan or swans do not fall victim to the virus. If you act in time, your swan will not have to be culled by a Wellington-booted government official armed with a gun or some poisoned pellets. The simplest way to save the life of your swan is to lure it indoors and keep it there. If you do so, the virus can lay waste all outdoor bird life for as far as you can see, but your indoor swan will be snug and secure so long as you batten down the hatches and allow no other birds into your house. There will be no point keeping your swan indoors if you then invite in any passing eagle, chaffinch, vulture, starling or peewit. I'm assuming for the purposes of this advisory note that you have only one swan, but if you have two or more pet swans, you'll find the technique outlined here equally effective. Swans are independent-minded birds, and no matter how devoted a swan keeper you are, they will always prefer to glide up and down the river or lake looking graceful and showing off their beautiful profiles than to be housebound and cloistered. You might think it's a simple matter of plucking your swan from the water, tucking it under your arm, carrying it indoors and putting it on the sofa. Do try to remember, however, that swans can be very aggressive. Next time you're with your swan, look at its face, very close to, and tell me if you do not see a cold, hard, alien savagery. 
You're probably thinking that luring your swan indoors is a simple matter of laying a trail of breadcrumbs and millet or other seeds from the edge of the lake, across the muddy field and in through your front door to the living room. Not so. Most swans, however famished, will balk at entering a building. They will peck eagerly away until they get to the door, but are then almost certain to turn around and return to the lake, chanting that more food will appear there before long. And it will, you can be sure of that. Can a swan be lured indoors by placing a decoy swan in your living room? This is possible, but your decoy must be thoroughly convincing. It not only needs to look like a swan and sound like a swan, but ideally it should smell like a swan too. You're not going to succeed by bundling up some old net curtains, blackening a portion with charcoal to resemble the head and covering it in weeds dragged from the lake. Your swan will take one cold, pitiless look at it, turn around and waddle back to the lake, possibly lunging to bite your hand as it leaves. What you need to do, if you're to have an indoor swan safe from bird flu, is to make your living room a more attractive environment for it than its usual lake, pond or river habitat. This is where a bank of loudspeakers and a tape loop of music by Sir Peter Maxwell Davis comes in. The master of the Queen's music is well known for his swan-eating habits, and no sane swan wants to be boiled and gobbled down for dinner, whether by an important contemporary composer or by a tone-deaf ingrate like you. Swans have a collective unconscious that baffles ornithologists, and ever since Maxwell Davis found an electrocuted whooper swan and took it back to his kitchen, his music strikes terror into their palpitating swan hearts. The non-stop racket of, for example, his work The Yellow Cake Review from 1980, played at top volume in the vicinity of the pond, will soon have your swan seeking shelter. By angling the loudspeakers correctly, you can make your living room the haven the poor panic-stricken swan yearns for. You will, of course, need to keep the music piping across the pond until such time as the government announces an all-clear, but that's the least of your worries. The important thing is that your swan will be safe. I am gluten-free jabbering man, and I jabber in the corridors of power. Like a L'Oreal product, I am armed with light-reflecting booster technology. I use it wisely and do not abuse the advantages it gives me. 
How easy it would be for me to take a member of parliament like Lembit Opic, say, or Dawn Primarolo, and not only boost the light reflecting off them, but jabber at them until they too are gluten-free. I could, if I wished, do the same with captains of industry, media moguls, big players in the world of sport, with anyone you care to mention who has even the tiniest smidgen of power and influence in the world. I have often been tempted to wreak my weird magic on Lionel Richie, for example, and yet I restrain myself. Now I just do the jabbering, a quiet sort of jabbering, and I jabber only at the little bugs and creepy crawlies that scurry unnoticed in the corridors of power, unnoticed, that is, by all but me and by the pest controllers to whom I refrain from jabbering, for even with my light-reflecting booster technology, I suspect they would outwit me with their fearsome engines of destruction, their sprays and rays and fumes and beams. I covet such weaponry, but it would be too dangerous in my hands. And in any case, I am the personification of mercy, and I am replete. I recently discovered a website called Teen Angst. Um, it's quite marvellous. It's a collection of magnificently intense verse contributed by people 18 and over who have overcome their angst and are able to laugh at their past and the products of their angst. And um, I thought I'd choose one, uh, an excerpt from uh, one poem. This is from Erin Millar's poem, A Buttercup in a Field of Flame. And it's, it's, only a, it's not the whole poem, but it's great. I am a buttercup, golden and free, standing in a field of flame. Strange and hideous beasts wander through the fire, and I want to be a rose. And I chose Erin Miller's piece because I too have often identified myself with the buttercup. Um, this is an extract from an interview that I gave some years ago. Uh, so then, Frank, if you were a flower of the field, what flower of the field would you be? I would be a buttercup. So are you saying that you would like to po poison cows or at least cause cows indigestion or other mild gastric ailments? Sometimes, yes. If the weight of the world hangs heavy on my shoulders and I lose all sense of moral purpose, that would be true, regrettably. I commend you for the brutal honesty of your reply, Frank, but... You do realise that I could turn you over to the police as a potential danger to cows. Crikey, I hadn't thought of that. Is there any particular type of buttercup you particularly identify with? Yes, there is. I would be happiest, I think, as a celery leaf buttercup, 
because it's also known as cursed crowfoot. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks, Frank. If there are any cows listening, don't have nightmares. Frank isn't really a buttercup, and he's not going to come and poison you. Just one point, um, in case anyone writes in complaining that I have traduced the reputation of Peter Maxwell Davis, Sir Peter Maxwell Davis, the master of the Queen's music, he did eat a swan. Um, there's a newspaper report. If you, want the, if you want the full details, go to the Hooting Yard website um, and there's a link to the original newspaper report of the master of the Queen's music finding an electrocuted whooper swan and eating it. The, this piece <coughs> that follows um, really needed to be read. <coughs> excuse me, on February the sixth. Um, so just pretend, do a bit of time travel, and pretend it's the sixth of February. Today, my thoughts turn to custard. I do not mean by this that my brain is curdling into mush, though that may well happen as the day goes on. This is, after all, early 21st century Britain, and I'm assailed by twaddle and pap wherever I look. It wouldn't be surprising if I succumbed to it and began to gibber and drool. That's why I've concentrated my mind on custard. Let us recall the words of Ned Ward, 1667 to 1731, who wrote, Custard, that noble cooling food, so toothsome, wholesome, and so good, that dainty so approved of old, whose yellow surface shines like gold. Ned Ward was a poet and a publican, described as follows in Volume 9 of the first edition of the Cambridge History of English and American Literature. He was no wizard, but a pedestrian jog-trot writer of doggerel, whom criticism could not affright nor opposition balk. Yet his hudibras is a wonderful achievement, its facile, fluent ease marks the versifier who could write 200 lines standing on one foot. His language is common enough. Neither Brown nor Motto surpasses him in knowledge of the slang which was heard in the tavern or at the street corner. Had he lived today, he might have been an ornament of the sporting press. Living when he did, he supported the cause of church and state in such couplets as jingled in the brain and tripped readily to the tongue. The custard-soaked quotation is from Ward's British Wonders, or a poetical description of the several prodigies and most remarkable accidents that have happened in Britain since the death of Queen Anne, 1717. Incidentally, do you lament, as I do, the passing of long, even unwieldy book titles? Nowadays everything has to be snappy and memorable, presumably so it can be marketed by zonkied bean counters. If someone published a history of ink today, for example, it would no doubt be called Ink, the Liquid That Changed the World. When David N. Carvalho addressed the topic in 1904, his book had the majestic title 
40 centuries of ink, or a chronological narrative concerning ink and its backgrounds, introducing incidental observations and deductions, parallels of time and colour phenomena, bibliography, chemistry, poetical effusions, citations, anecdotes and curiosa, together with some evidence respecting the evanescent character of most inks of today and an epitome of chemico-legal ink. That just wouldn't get past them today, would it? Ink custard. Could custard ever be called the yellow goo that changed the world? Possibly not. It's difficult to think of any earth-shattering events in which custard has played a pivotal role, or indeed, or indeed any role at all. I know that I could make some up if I so desired, but I'm not going to. Not today, anyway, for today it seems important to cleave to the truth. What is custard, anyway? According to the Wikipedia, it's a family of preparations based on milk and eggs thickened with heat. Most commonly, it refers to a dessert or dessert sauce, but custard bases are also used for quiches and other savoury foods. Depending on how much egg or thickener is used, custard may vary in consistency from a thin pouring sauce to a thick blancmange. Most custard is cooked in a double boiler, bain-marie, or heated very gently on the stove in a saucepan, but custard can also be steamed or baked in the oven with or without a hot water bath. Instant and ready-made custards are also marketed, though they're not true custards if they are not thickened with egg. I think we can agree that only true custard is worthy of our attention, particularly on this day devoted to truth. Listeners may wonder why today of all days, the 6th of February, I'm so insistent on truth-telling. My reasons, I should say, are entirely non-custard related. Exactly 48 years ago, on the 6th of February 1958, the Busby Babes, the flower of post-war British football, were wiped out in the Munich air disaster. Hang your head in their memory for a moment. Come on, hang your head a bit longer than that. OK. I've never cared a jot about football myself, but my uncle Ned was a fierce adherent of the sport. Ned was not named after Ned Ward, by the way, in case you were wondering. Deeply affected by the tragedy that unfolded at that blizzard-wracked German airfield, Ned cajoled our whole extended family into joining him in his annual remembrance of the crash. Throughout my childhood, throughout my life, the 6th of February has been the most significant day of the year. It means more to me than Christmas or Easter or even my own birthday. I can blithely let feast days and holy days pass unremarked. You'll find me unmoved on National Potato Day, the 29th of January, Penguin Awareness Day, the 20th of January, and National Punctuation Day the 24th of September. Yet the shade of dead Uncle Ned hovers over me on this day, and perhaps it's in homage to him rather than to those lost young footballers that I promise to speak only the truth from midnight to midnight. And that's why I'm speaking only of true custard, not of the wretched synthetic slop that seeks to deceive the custard innocent palate. We would do well to remember here that Thomas More's wife, 
or was it his daughter, took custard to him when he was imprisoned by King Henry VIII. Those would have been true custards without a doubt. Admittedly, my source is semi-fictional, being an ill-remembered reading of Robert Bolt's play A Man for All Seasons. What's clear in my memory is that this was my first encounter with the construction a custard, as opposed to some custard or a bowl of custard, or of course simply custard. I was about 14 years old at the time, given the play to read as part of my schoolwork, and all I recall of it is the curious fascination I felt for that indefinite article. A custard? It was so unexpected, it made me think of custard in a new way. I tried to visualise what this centuries-old custard would have looked like. If it was not in a bowl or a dish, it must have some solid form. Was it wrapped up in a bag, a bag of wool or burlap? Years passed before I learned that the very word custard is derived from crustard, which is a tart with a crust. So doomed Thomas More's custards would have been encased in pastry, I surmise. One final note, not exactly about custard, but about yellow, the colour of custard. However pale it may be, true custard has at least a yellow tinge. The French painter Pierre Bonnard once remarked, Ah, yellow, I can't get enough of it. Listeners, can you say the same for custard? And that's all we have time for on Hooting Yard on the air this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's been very instructive that you've learned about custard and how to protect your swan in the event of bird flu and other stuff. I'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Oh, and thank you to Richard Thomas for playing the part of interviewer in that thrilling interview. Bye-bye.